This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Arthur Snell. Imagine a story about a group of rare and endangered animals. Imagine that these animals are targeted by powerful, politically connected individuals who appear to operate above the law, untroubled by the police or other agencies. Imagine that these powerful and immensely wealthy people were able to influence politicians, sometimes to change laws and regulations to suit their interests, leading to the collapse of populations of these endangered species. I must be talking about poaching in Africa or trade in tiger parts for Chinese medicines. No. In fact, this is a story about Britain, about the tiny number of super-rich people that pursue the sport of grouse shooting and about the persecution of raptors on grouse moors in this country. To discuss this issue, I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Avery, environmental campaigner and author. Mark, welcome to The Bunker. Hello there. So, Mark, uh, I've tried to set out the background to this story there a little, which is basically that uh, there are grouse moors, places where people shoot grouse as, as a, a game sport in this country. And on those moors, rare birds, raptors, hen harriers and certain other species are persecuted illegally. And yet this continues to the point where these populations are in collapse. Are you able to just explain to the listener who might not be familiar with this world how we get to where we are and and what the current situation is with these endangered birds? Well, you're absolutely right. You've summed it up pretty well. Of course, it's not the rich businessmen and the landed gentry and uh, people like that who are going out and killing these birds themselves. It's their employees, most of whom are gamekeepers. So if you look at the occupations of the people who have been convicted of crimes against birds of prey, then two-thirds, three-quarters of them are gamekeepers. And there aren't that many gamekeepers in the UK, a few tens of thousands. So they're pretty active, really. It's perfectly fair to pin this on game shooting. And up in the uplands, where grouse shooting is the main sport, then, yeah, these are wildlife crime hotspots. Birds like hen harriers, golden eagles, peregrine falcons, red kites, goshawks and a bunch of other species are deliberately killed because uh, they do eat red grouse. They've presumably been eating red grouse for thousands and thousands of years, whereas grouse shooting as a posh, sexy sport, which you have to pay quite a lot of money to participate in, well, they call it a sport. It's not that sporting, really, is it? I mean, if the grouse had guns as well, then it might be a sport. But um, grouse shooting has been going in its present form for about 150 years. Can you just explain, uh, particularly, I, I think a lot of our listeners are probably live in towns and without 
caricaturing many probably in the south of England. What is a grouse moor? What what kind of landscape are we talking about? And and you, you've said a bit, but perhaps say a bit more about where in the country and what kind of landscape it is a grouse moor. Um, <clears throat> Well, it's definitely in the uplands, so it's up a hill. Uh, it's probably above a 1,000 feet high. It's in many of our national parks, in the Peak District, in North York Moors, in the Yorkshire Dales, and what you will see is lots of heather, and that's what red grouse eat. There won't be many trees around. It's pretty bleak. In the middle of the winter, there might be loads of snow. It's a tough place to live, but that's where red grouse live. Red grouse is about the size of a large chicken, and it looks a bit like a chicken. I mean, I think a red grouse would be insulted to be described as looking a bit like a chicken, but it looks a bit like a chicken. Round brown bird to be camouflaged. The males have red wattles above their eyes. They make some noises. If you go up into the hills in the spring, you'll hear red grouse telling you to go away. They go, go back, go back, go back, go back. The densities of red grouse on, on grouse moors at the end of the season are probably between 10 and 100 times natural levels. So although this is a wild bird, it is a wild bird, everything is done for it to increase its numbers. Not because... Gamekeepers and grouse moor owners love red grouse, although I'm sure they're pretty keen on red grouse, but so that there are as many grouse as possible for shooting clients to come and shoot in the late summer and autumn. It'll cost you about 90 quid a bird on average to shoot them. It'll cost you about 25 quid for a red grouse on a plate in a fancy London restaurant with game chips, gravy and a load of vegetables. So the money is definitely in the shooting. You've described that scenario. And and I imagine that a lot of people have seen these environments, perhaps on a holiday, perhaps they're doing a, a walking tour or something, and they don't realise that this is a managed environment in which the grouse is, is effectively, as you say, although it's a wild bird, it, it is given a habitat in which it can thrive. Now, let's talk a bit about its natural predators, specifically the birds. So you've got golden eagles, peregrine falcons, goshawks. These are all birds of prey that naturally exist in that environment and predate on red grouse. What what are the the numbers of these uh, birds in those areas? Are, are, they, are they thriving or are, they, are, are the numbers falling? I think one of the important things to, to realise about the diet of those raptors that you've mentioned is that they eat loads of things. They don't uh, depend on red grouse, but when they end up on a grouse moor, they go, oh, look at all these grouse. I'll eat some of them. So golden eagles eat mountain hares. They eat quite a lot of carrion. They eat ptarmigan, which are other grouse which occur at higher altitudes, but they'll eat red grouse. Hen harriers are the birds that gamekeepers, upland gamekeepers, hate the most. They really do hate hen harriers. Uh, I love hen harriers. They're a very beautiful bird. But they they eat red grass. They'll eat adult red grass. But probably more importantly, they will eat grass chicks. When successful, they produce a brood of chicks, nice fluffy little chicks, which look a bit like 
chickens young, and hen harriers will certainly eat them. They're very good at catching them. You asked about the status of the birds of prey. They're all rarer than they should be. Um, There are about 500 pairs of golden eagles in the UK, almost all of them in Scotland. There are about 600 pairs of hen harriers in the UK, uh, most of them in Scotland, uh, some in Wales, some in Northern Ireland and some in England. But uh, let's take hen harrier, although it would be true for golden eagle in Scotland. Um, You don't find many of them successfully nesting on grouse moors. If you look at the range of golden eagles in Scotland, there are lots of them on the west coast and there are very few of them on the east coast. And it's the east coast places like um, uh, the Cairngorms uh, around Balmoral, where the Queen goes. There's a grouse moor at Balmoral. And down in the Angus Glens, places like that, very few golden eagles there, even though the habitat looks brilliant for them. There ought to be loads of golden eagles there, uh, but there aren't. And when golden eagles do go there, they tend to die. They are poisoned. How are these birds being killed? And 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 how can we be absolutely sure that this is not just some terrible, uh, you know, disease or some other, you know, uh, natural uh, process? There are a variety of ways in which they are killed. Uh, putting down poison baits is one of the ways. So, You get a rabbit, split it open, put some poison, leave it out prominently on the hill. A bird like a golden eagle or a red kite is quite likely to spot it, come down and eat it and be killed. So that's one way we do it. And that way, quite often, people find the bodies. Obviously, uh, whoever left the bait with poison in it is more likely to find the bodies and get rid of them. But They might be lying around for a day or two. Our walkers find them. Walkers find them and report them. And then you can get the bodies tested. And you find that they're full of a pesticide. There are various types of pesticide which aren't used in the uplands at all. Some of them aren't used in the UK at all, apart from poisoning raptors. So poison is one way. Trapping them is another way. But shooting them is another way. So hen harriers... Let's go back to hen harriers, one of my favourite birds. They nest on the ground. Golden eagles and peregrines are sensible enough to nest on cliffs, where it's quite difficult to get at their nests. Hen harriers nest on the ground. So if there's a pair of hen harriers nesting on a particular grouse moor, if you want to um, get rid of that pair of hen harriers, all you have to do is work out where the nest is and walk up to the nest. Uh, The female who spends most of the time at the nest, will fly off. And she will... They're brave birds, female hen harriers. They'll fly away, but then they'll come back and start mobbing you. They will call an alarm call and keep zooming over your head as though they're going to knock your head off. So if you've got a gun, you just shoot them. The reason we know that some of this is happening is... Well, some of it is because... People kind of admit it. They say, oh, yes, there is too much illegal persecution. Of course, it's not me and my gamekeeper. It's other people who do it, just like speeding and everything else. It's always somebody else. But the big breakthrough in recent years has been being able to put satellite tags on birds. So 
you can put this gadget, uh, which is a bit like a very small rucksack on the back of a bird like a golden eagle or a hen harrier when it's in the nest, when it's a young bird, uh, and it'll fly off and it'll be fine with that tag on it. The tag will send a signal uh, to you via a satellite uh, every now and again, maybe several times a day, maybe every few days you can choose. So it will tell you where the bird is. And obviously, if the bird dies, the bird appears to be in the same place for quite a long time. And if birds die naturally, you can go to that place, pick the bird up, get it analysed, find out why it died. Maybe it starved to death. Maybe it flew into a building or something. Maybe it died of disease. What we've learned is that tags that are working perfectly well rather spookily and inexplicably stop transmitting. And that, we're sure, is because, and this is what scientists say as well, that is because the tags have been destroyed. Well, you can't destroy the tag without destroying the bird. And the strange thing is that those inexplicable disappearances of tags are ten times more likely to happen on grouse moors, which are pretty rare habitats, than they are on other habitats. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. As you said, a few gamekeepers have been convicted. Has there ever been any uh, successful criminal investigation into a Grassmore owner that has has managed to sort of, as it were, pin the action on that person rather than the low-income employee? Not really, no. In Scotland, they have a thing called vicarious liability for wildlife crimes. Vicarious liability, as probably lots of people know, is, is quite common in the law, that um, it wouldn't just be the person who does something wrong who is liable for a crime, but they're ultimate boss would be liable as well unless the ultimate boss could show that they had taken all sorts of precautions to ensure that illegality doesn't happen. In Scotland there is vicarious liability and a few cases where gamekeepers have been convicted of wildlife crimes there have been fines put on the landowners but it's quite difficult because there will now probably be a paper trail that shows that the uh, landowner or agent or factor of the land has said you mustn't do anything illegal it's just that they don't mean it always. So let's talk a little bit about these owners you've mentioned that your your day of shooting costs uh, eight grand the grouse moors themselves are although they're in wild and remote parts of the country are worth many millions of pounds as as property. What sorts of people own grouse moors and what do they say about this issue? How would they explain 
the inexplicable and anomalous numbers of deaths of rare birds all focused on the areas where their grouse moors are? There are families who have owned the land for centuries uh, who have, um, you know, uh, they regard that land as their land, which it is, but also that that they have been custodians of the land, that they've been shooting grouse for years and years and years, and um, they tend not to be very keen on people telling them what they ought to do on their land. Uh, and there's some there's some new money that has come in as well, rich business people who maybe have gone grouse shooting quite like it and it enables them to mix with a bunch of dukes earls and knights of the realm so opens up social avenues if you ask grassmore owners about bird prey killing they would say that they abhor it don't approve of it and that anybody who did it would be ostracized and thrown out of various clubs and associations uh, and they'll all say we don't do it but a few other people do the evidence is now so strong about birds being poisoned shot and simply disappearing on grouse moors that the it's all made up or nothing to see here story doesn't really work anymore i think there might be some change in the air but I think it might be more to do with the economics of grouse shooting and some of the issues that we've talked about. Ten years ago, isn't it great? Here's a picture of a load of people in tweed with shotguns. Uh, and it was kind of nice rural story. Now people picking up the Daily Telegraph or whatever think... Now, I'm pretty sure I've heard about a load of stuff about birds of prey being killed on these places. I'm not so sure I like this. Plus, um, there's a lot of pressure on the management of grouse moors. All that burning of heather that makes the habitat better for red grouse is not good for blanket bogs, which are areas of wet habitat that lay down peat on top of our hills and this feeds into climate change you know so we we have the climate change committee reporting to parliament this year that all burning of heather on peatlands which is done almost exclusively because of grey shooting should cease they said it should cease last year so the UK went into COP26 in Glasgow saying the world ought to look after its habitats and uh, protect carbon stores. And we're not doing anything like as much as we should do to protect the carbon stores of the uplands, many of which are managed by grey shooting. So I would be optimistic for change, particularly if grey shooting has a bad reputation that there's this kind of smell attached to it because of the amount of uh, unlawfulness that accompanies it. The value of grouse moors, I think, is going to fall as grouse moors, but go up as carbon stores. It's good to end on an optimistic note. One thing I said in the introduction was that the owners of these moors, uh, by definition, highly wealthy individuals 
well-connected, probably in most cases associated with, with the Conservative Party. To what extent are these people able to put a bit of a rearguard action? I've noticed, albeit it's an adjacent area, it, it's not specifically on grouse shooting, that, that just in the last few days, uh, the regulations concerning um, pheasant shoots and, uh, and birds that, that, that are seen to get in the way of that have, have been adapted apparently in, in the interests of, um, of, of uh, you know, shoot owners. So when we look at the owners of these grouse moors, you'll look, as you say, there are sort of dukes, there are uh, other very prominent uh, business people, you, I think that, you know, the Sheikh of Dubai owns one of these malls. Are these people, uh, do we see evidence that they are kind of managing to lobby and change political policies on, on these questions? It looks like that, doesn't it? I mean, many of them are donors to the Conservative Party, which isn't terribly surprising, uh, but it's notable. Uh, I do remember being told by one Grace Morwagner that if ever they had a difficulty with anything that the government in England, DEFRA, was doing on Grace Moors, they just got the Duke of Westminster to phone up the Secretary of State at DEFRA and put them right. Now, that was a story quite amusing, and that was the previous Duke of Westminster. But the Duke of Westminster is um, one of the 10 wealthiest people in the Sunday Times rich list. There are a lot of other people who have a lot of money and a lot of political clout connections. Uh, there's, no, there's no real doubt at all that they have more say in what happens in the uplands of Britain than you or I do. So finally, what can our listeners do? Um, there may be listeners to this podcast who live in the areas directly uh, affected, but I expect that most of our listeners do not, but they may be people who visit these areas and there are certainly people who care about the environment and about wildlife crime. What sort of um, information sources and, and campaign resources can you point our listeners towards if they want to become informed and possibly take more action on this sort of thing? On bird of prey persecution, there are a lot of amateur raptor workers who are doing a lot of the hard work collecting the data. But the organisation that does the most is definitely the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. And they have an investigations unit that uh, spend quite a lot of time hiding behind trees or hiding in the heather, trying to catch people who are breaking the law and killing wildlife. So the RSPB is an organisation to support. I am uh, one of the three co-founders of an organisation, very, very, very small organisation called Wild Justice. My fellow co-founders are Ruth Tingay and a bloke called Chris Packham, who is on the telly now and again. I think we've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you could um, you could find our website. We have a newsletter, a free newsletter. You could sign up to that. Uh, we'll tell you lots of things about environmental campaigns and how you can help. I wrote a book about grey shooting back in 2015. It's called Inglorious because it's about what happens on the glorious 12th and all the things that we've talked about and more. If you can't quite believe what you've heard me say, buy the book and see whether you can believe it when it's written down in 100,000 words. RSPB and Wild Justice, there are other organisations as well, but 
I'd start with those and uh, we'll point you in the right direction of petitions you can sign, things that you can do. But if you ever see somebody killing a bird of prey, that's illegal. So use your mobile phone, make a note of where you are uh, and report it to the police. Report it to the police and they will, they'll have a look at it. Brilliant. Well, that seems a a serious and uh, important point to make at the close there. Mark Avery, thank you so much for uh, explaining this complex and troubling story to our listeners. And thank you for joining me in the bunker. Thank you. Listeners, remember there's a new Bunker Daily every Wednesday, Thursday and Sunday with Start Your Week on Mondays, the main panel show on Tuesdays and the Culture Bunker on Saturdays. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. If you like this episode, why not share it with three friends using the Bunker Up hashtag? You can also back the Bunker on the crowdfunding platform Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Arthur Snell. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.